0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 58 of the Ascent of Board Games. It is time for our annual review of stuff we liked this year. We're doing it a little early so that everyone has time to buy these during Black Friday and salute American commercialism. Jason is not with us today due to some unavoidable scheduling conflicts. He is, however, kind enough to have pre-recorded his selections. So I'm going to play them and we will react to them appropriately and then move on to our own stuff. So
1: Constant gasping muttering.
0: Yes, exactly. Well, it's it's like 90% of what we do.
2: I don't know how fair this is. I don't think with Jason here that any of us are going to score any points without Jason here.
0: Uh, You know, he'll hear the episode. We can get retroactive points. Okay. So here is what Jason has to say.
3: All right, so I kind of did these in year of release order. This is a simple way of doing this, so there are no particular order in terms of favorites, just when they were released. Starting off, we've got Chronicles of Drunigore, Age of Darkness, released in 2021 by Creative Games Studio, created by Daniel Alves and Cunha Neto. I'm sure that was exactly right. This This is a frank point from long, long ago, one of the previous podcasts. He has the original version, I believe. I decided to get in on the reprint, and when it came out, I started playing the campaign with a couple of friends. There are a lot of changes from the original version to this 1.5 version, from what I understand. A lot of it was updating rules and making the rulebook make more sense, changing some of the storage so that you can actually put things in places, and they kind of added some more variety to the monster behaviors by giving you alternative activations or um, AI scripts for them on the cards. I think they updated the sculpts on some of the characters. I couldn't find anything online about it, but I seem to remember reading that somewhere. And then they kind of apparently cleaned up the campaign quite a bit. Functionally, this is a cooperative dungeon crawler. The idea is you pick one of your characters, you're going to play through the campaign with the same characters, and they're going to increase in power over time. What really drew me to this one is there's a lot of things that they kind of have going for them that are unique. So every scenario that you complete, you always get rewarded with something. That something could just be access to the current tier of equipment that you have. You might get a hero skill, you might get a dungeon roll skill, you might get a class ability. We recently got some extra HP, which was the first time I had seen that happen. So that's nice. Uh, I've definitely played plenty of these games where it's very much just kind of, you go through a scenario, you complete it, great, just do the next scenario. There's no real rewards other than what you find on the board. So this one, there's always something you're going to get. Now, after playing a couple scenarios, the the first tier equipment gets pretty stale pretty quickly. I think that's something they're addressing in the next game. Other things that they did that was kind of cool? Each of the areas that you enter on the map, like when you move from one room to another, there's a little door there, and the door has a setup for the next room on it, telling you where the monsters are, where the different terrain pieces might be, other things that might be showing up there. They do have alternative ones with a QR code that are supposed to be harder versions of that, so that if you're playing through it a second time, maybe you can make it more difficult. I haven't tried that myself. Last time I tried it, they weren't working yet. Maybe that's changed. Other things that they've got going for it each of the characters will pick what's called a dungeon role. kind of serves two purposes. It determines where you land in the initiative track. So I'm, for example, playing it as the defender role, and I'm always first, which is really nice if you're a person who has to worry about positioning to be tanking hits for other people. And then each of them also give you different skills that you can also upgrade as one of your rewards later on in the game, so they can get more powerful. They're pretty good skills. Mine, as a defender, have a lot of different capabilities for interrupting the uh, enemy turns and taking damage for other people. So that's a really handy skill. You know, keeps the damage off of people. They do have 3D terrain. The idea here is they have these plastic vacuum-formed trays that you actually put the map tiles into. And terrain kind of serves a couple different purposes. Sometimes it can prevent you from going to different places. More often than not, it's used for give you a bonus or a penalty for trying to hit things. If you happen to be above something, attacking down, you get a plus two to hit. If you're the opposite, below a monster you're attacking up, you have a negative two penalty to your d20 roll to hit. So I think it's mostly just to make it look more interesting than just a flat board. But sometimes it has more impact. Like we were able to push monsters off of a bridge element and just insta kill them, which made that scenario very, very easy. This particular campaign is called the Age of Darkness. And in most scenarios, at the end of the initiative track, you're going to be drawing anywhere from one to two runes, and these runes have little Tetris pieces on the other side, telling you which size Tetris piece of darkness to spawn from one of the darkness spawning spots. The darkness is always going after the hero with most health. If that hero is already standing in darkness, it'll go after the next, and so on and so forth. If everybody's in darkness when you draw darkness, they suffer the crush, where you basically all just take damage. The first time darkness hits you on, uh, on a turn, you take, I think it's two damage, and you also have a negative two penalty to hit whenever you're standing in darkness. And enemies get a plus two damage bonus whenever they're standing in darkness. So darkness is bad. I've yet to see anything that removes darkness. So it's just going to get worse over time. I think it functions mostly as a timer for the missions, so you can't slow roll it. You really have to kind of make a mad dash to complete whatever your task is. Usually a task is kill all the things in this room. And then kind of last thing, the thing that's probably my favorite part about this game, is that everything you're doing is based off of these action cubes that you have. So depending on the character, you'll have a certain mix of yellow, red, blue, and green cubes. The cubes serve two purposes, well, three kind of. One is you use that cube to activate your class abilities. So this would be like, hey, I use a yellow melee cube to activate my, you know, hit you in the head with a mace attack, right? So you take that cube, you place it in that slot. Now that slot is locked until you clear that cube again. It also is used for spending to get additional movement. So you can turn an action cube. Into movement so you can get closer to whatever you're trying to deal with. Or the last thing is the cubes also determine the distance that those skills or attacks can be used at. So, for example, the yellow melee cube, you have to be strictly adjacent to the thing that you're trying to activate. Ranged red cubes can be used up to one area away, and then blue and green cubes can be used literally anywhere on the board. There's no line of sight, nothing to worry about there. It's literally anywhere. So The blue and green can be very, very powerful because they can either give you an infinite range attack or give you the ability to heal people at range or absorb damage for them at range. As your character increases in power, some of the rewards will give you skills, and the skills color will determine which cube you get to put onto your character now. So it gives you more action cubes before you have to do like a clearing action to remove them from your board. Whenever you run out of cubes, or if you choose to do it when you only have two cubes left, you get all your cubes back, so all your action spaces open up again. But you also have to post what's called a curse cube in one of your spots, blocking it out until you cleanse it. If you have too many curse cubes, your character dies, and that scenario's over. So there's a constant balance of what's the best cube to use now. Some of the skills have the ability to use any of the four colors, so they can be really versatile in letting you choose. Right now, I only have to use a yellow because I'm right next to this guy. Whereas later on in that mission, maybe I'll be using a blue or a green because they're literally across the entire table from me and I need to heal them really badly. So it's a really great game. I'm quite enjoying it. We're, I don't know, maybe about halfway through the campaign. We did play with the optional little side missions, which are like little mini campaigns that are like two or three scenarios long each. Those have been fun. They kind of change things up a bit. And then I think after this, there's two other campaigns on top of that. And then in 2024, they'll be releasing a new campaign called Chronicles of Jernogor Apocalypse. It's its own campaign. I think the end goal of that game is to defeat the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, of course, are gigantic minis. So I'm very much looking forward to that. While I was out at Gen Con earlier this year, I got the opportunity to both meet the people who made the game. They were very, very nice people. They were very excited to meet people that love their game. And I got to try their next game that they're going to be doing called Dante, The Invasion of Hell which is currently slated to come out in 2025. It's more of a boss battler with some narrative elements. The demo we played was super fun. I'm very curious to see where it goes. I have a lot of faith in what they've been doing. Obviously, big fan of Drunagor. So, unless something scares me off, I'll probably be backing Dante as well.
2: I'm a little surprised that this is on Jason's list, because I very pointedly did not put it on my list. I think Drunagor has some cool ideas, but They feel a little half-baked, and a lot of it is very samey. Like, he mentioned that the equipment gets stale, but what he did not mention is that we just unlocked the, like, second tier of equipment, which is exactly the same as the first tier, just with bigger numbers. I would have liked to see them stretch their system a little bit more. Like I said, they've got some cool ideas, they just don't do very much with them unfortunately
4: hmm. no i mean the level up every character is quite different in terms of actions plus you get not only the character abilities but also the side abilities you can unlock and then the permanent powers there's a lot of actions the equipment is reasonable but you know when you get to the second tier there's still nicer stuff Unless you're playing a really boring character.
0: <laughs> wow. How weird that people don't all like the same thing. hmm
4: <laughs> But
0: mm-hmm. still good to know. I'm still curious to try this when we played a little bit of a mission when Frank first brought it out, but I would like to play some more of it at some point. But I would like to play many games. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe, what's number five on your list?
1: Number five on my list actually came out in 2022, but we got it to the table this year a couple of times, which is Deep Rock Galactic designed by Ol Stenson, maybe, mm. and developed by Mod Publishing. In Deep Rock Racket, you take the part of one of four dwarves who are in a dungeon to mine for various kinds of resources and looking to defeat all the enemies. Really, you're trying to survive all the enemies while you collect either fossils or alien eggs or Morkite, the mineral that's in the walls or stuff like that. And the game plays pretty quickly is very clever, does a very good job of feeling a lot like the video game, and there's a lot of randomness in it in that it has a lot of replayability. The enemies that come out and the events that happen are all driven by a couple of decks. Anytime you do a scenario, you might experience a different thing. We ended up having to play a scenario twice the other day because the first time we played the scenario, the enemy deck just hated us really, really badly. And then we played it again, and it was like, oh, that was much more pleasant.
0: I've never gotten into the video game, but it does look like it's a pretty impressive simulation of the game. I think they just kickstarted another set of expansions. They did.
1: One of the reasons we got to the table is like, I need to figure out if I need to get more of this game so we can kind of sit down and really go through it. Mm-hmm. And they have a couple of things that they don't have yet, which is coming out in one of the expansions, which is a prestige system, in essence, like a between gate game way to get like long-term benefits and then have the scenarios end up being harder because you have all these long-term benefits, which they have in the expansion, which I'm very excited for. I think we're kind of looking at that as like, that's when we're going to sit down and just like play through the entire thing.
0: Makes sense to me. Anybody else have comments on that one?
4: No, I'm curious though. Okay. It does look like my kind of game and I missed it. Okay. So you may get a point in the future.
0: Ah, yes. Provisional future points.
4: Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think,
2: If you like the video game, you will probably like this board game, because it does do a good job of doing that. But it also gives you a little bit of customization that you don't get in the video game. For example, you can select your secondary weapon, like your pistol, which allows you to diversify your damage portfolio as a group, which has a little bit of like, if Joe is taking these two types and I'm taking these two types, then... Brian, you can fill in this gap, and Frank, you've got these other two,
0: which is very nice. I really like the phrase, diversify your damage portfolio. (laughs) Exactly.
2: It's very important. It's very important
0: in this modern age. In this economy, yeah. All right, cool. Mike, what's up on your list? So my number
2: five, and I'm kind of ordering these by like, if I had to play one right now, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Is actually a game that I've only played in solo mode. And that is My City, Roll and Bill, which is a roll and write based on the My City franchise, which I have just really fallen in love with, despite the fact that nobody will play it with me. (laughs) This one, basically, you roll two dice. Each of the sides of the dice has a half dot on one of the sides of each face, and you connect those two dots together to make a pattern. And that shows you the pattern of building that you are making on your map. Every time you play, the scoring conditions change and evolve. So it's like the first one, you're just trying to fill in your map as best you can. Then you have to cover up rocks and not cover up trees. And then you have to surround a specific spot that has a well on it to get more points and so on and so forth. Okay. And it's just a cute little game that you can play on the go. I took it on vacation with me this year and played it at the airport. It was great. Okay.
0: Did you mention the designer and publisher and stuff? Oh, I did not. You okay. should do that do thing. That. Uh,
4: 2023, Reiner Knizia Cosmos.
0: Oh, that
2: guy. Yes, that guy.
4: That guy, yeah. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> I did like this, but it pales next to its... It is smaller and tiny, but I think it's not as good as its friends. My City and My Island. My Island just came out, which has hexes. But it's the same kind of game, but you use physical tiles, and you start doing stickers and all sorts of crazy, because it is essentially, in the full-size games, a legacy game.
2: Frank, that sounds almost like you want to play it with me.
4: Oh, the small one? Any of them. Any of them, Frank. (laughs) I just want to play the games that I've got (laughs) and purchased.
3: Good
4: point. Yes, after Space Corps, we will do that. But yeah, My City, it makes a good starter game. I mean, each game takes... For even the big box set, it takes like 20 minutes.
2: Yeah, it's real light. You know, the theming is, I think, equally as light. So if you are not oh, into yeah. a city builder, then it will hold no appeal to you. But like, I don't know. The games just are
0: super charming. And Oh
4: yeah, yeah. totally.
0: I love them. I don't know, Mike. Reiner Knizzi is famous for his deep and involved themes in his games. So mm-hmm. was. <laughs>
1: Mike was playing it while we were at the last swap meet. Mm-hmm. And it looked cute. Yeah. Certainly something you can play on the go, which is always nice.
0: Yeah, I would do that. All right, so mine is a game that I would have expected to be much higher on this list, and that is Frosthaven, which is technically a 2022 release from Isaac Childress and Cephalofair Games. This one is kind of rough for me because I like so many of the individual parts of Frosthaven. I mean, the card-based combat thing is functionally the same as in Gloomhaven, a little bit more polished, but it's tremendous fun and great strategic stuff. I like the city-building aspect. I like the way the story arcs are published. There's sort of three main enemy groups that you're trying to find some way to deal with, and they interact in interesting ways. They unlock characters in different ways. And so all of the individual components of Frosthaven, I think, are great. The problem for me, and we've talked about this in the campaign we were playing and have since more or less stopped playing, is that there's just too much. There's too many moving pieces. The character classes themselves are all individually more complicated and somewhat more specialized than the ones in Gloomhaven. And when you're doing a dungeon, you have to focus on the goals of the dungeon and also your individual battle goals. And also know when to use a pet if you have a pet for the group. And also keep track of special rules for that scenario, which are part of a challenge system which comes in. And also, and also, and also. There's just too many bits and subsystems piled onto a fundamentally strong core. I just feel like it's too much to keep track of. And as Joe is wont to say, the juice is not worth the squeeze. I love the game. I would like to finish it someday. I would be over the moon if they ever did a computer version of Frosthaven like they did with Gloomhaven, because that was a great adaptation. And I would love to finish the story without having to keep track of this much stuff manually. But as it is, I'm not sure I'll be playing much more of it, which is a shame. It's
1: so much. It's so much.
0: It really is.
1: I'm very fascinated by... So they're doing a rebalance pass of the original game Uh based on what they've learned. And I do kind of wonder if they've balanced a little too tightly. I always get the feeling in almost all the new characters in Frosthaven that most of the lost cards aren't good enough to be lost cards, right? The effect of like the ongoing ramifications of losing a card doesn't meet with the amount of damage output, the amount of potential damage output that those cards can do. It feels like for Frosthaven, they've tuned it more tightly, and it feels a little bit less fun because of that.
0: Yeah, I know you said that when we were doing the campaign. I didn't feel that way, but, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to feel in your soul.
2: I think the interesting thing about that statement, though, is I've actually gone and looked at some of the rebalanced cards from Gloomhaven and just All of the Lost cards that they've rebalanced are just strictly better than their predecessors. That's interesting. And so I feel like they attempted to make the Lost cards in Frosthaven better than those that are in Gloomhaven, and yet I don't think you felt that way about the Gloomhaven Lost cards, did you?
1: No, but it's like, I don't know that I felt that way super strongly, but like, I wasn't at that point an expert with the system. I hadn't put in my thousand hours into the Mm. system at that point or whatever. But then after playing through all of Gloomhaven, I definitely have a much different view on the math and likelihoods and all that kind of stuff, right? Nothing feels worse than I go to do a lost card and I pull a miss, right? Mm -hmm. And like, now I just like wasted a bunch of resources and also didn't have any board effect. And, you know, it happens, right? But, like, there's no mitigation for that. It makes it a higher gamble, right? That happens pretty mm-hmm. infrequently. But, like, then then even if I had hit, the lost card's, like, two points higher of an attack. And that just doesn't feel lost enough for me. And don't get me wrong. Some characters do have lost cards that are great, mm-hmm. right? Like, the there was a pyre that I had where he could make a volcano appear and do a ton of damage to a bunch of things on the board. And I was like, oh, that's a great lost card. But a lost card that's like, I lose this card and do two extra damage on an attack that's very similar to all of my other attacks is like, is that a lost card though?
0: Uh. Wow. Yeah. And from what I've seen in some of the discussions, it seems kind of like the lost cards are more or less variable depending on the class. Like if you're in a character with a 12 card deck and some recovery stuff, lost cards aren't going to be that exciting. But if you have a small deck, a lost card has got to be a big deal. That may be part of it. The character classes didn't bother me. It's just too much fiddliness for me.
1: Yeah, this game is like the classic. What if the game was more? I mean, I'll compare it to a game that's not on my list and Mike does not have the greatest relationship with, hmm. but uh, Anne's Trespass Odyssey. Hmm. We were playing through both at the same time, and they're both epitomes of, minus the fact that Anne's Trespass Odyssey isn't a direct sequel to Kingdom Death, it spiritually kind of is. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to go with it for this example. They're both like, well, what if we took the original thing and then just added more things? And they both get a little bit caught up in their moreness, right? Like, all Mm -hmm. this more stuff ends up being kind of like,
0: why? Yeah. Yeah, just because you can add it doesn't mean you should. Your scientists were so
4: preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should.
0: Yeah, and
2: Frosthaven is weird because thematically, you are also in a situation that is very much different than Gloomhaven that I don't think they mechanically took advantage of. Rules as written, your characters are still not sharing resources, which seems like an odd choice for a city that is living on the fringe of the world where the lack of cooperation will lead to death
0: yeah i still am not entirely sure that was the right decision even for the base game yeah the not sharing resources and i think it's probably one of the most common house rules from people playing it and like you say with frost Haven especially there's a lot of stuff that we need to do together And, you know, while the game likes to say, yeah, we're all individual mercenaries and we're out for our own stuff, you gotta keep yourselves in the town alive.
1: But we're also building a city, and if we don't all have enough things, then we all fail together.
0: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I like the game in theory, just not as much in practice.
1: I had a lot of fun with it, it's just it got to be too much. Yeah. The other stuff weighed down the fun Mm -hmm. until I couldn't see the fun anymore. Yeah. Is my personal opinion.
2: Right. The number of times that we finished a mission and then looked over and said, oh, we forgot to do blah.
0: Yeah. Was a lot. Yeah.
1: Mike. Have we used our pet yet? No. No, no. no, we have not.
0: We used our pet maybe twice? <laughs> Remember <laughs> that
2: conditional thing that we flipped at the beginning of this mission? Oh, yeah, did we totally do that forgot one? No, about that.
1: No, no, no. Gosh, no.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. It is definitely at the point where it needs a robot
4: to handle a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: It's just... So anyway, let's push for the computer version. Anyway, that's my number five, Frosthaven. Frank, what do you got?
4: Wow, a game I actually like. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a lot of hate going here. It's on my list, it's just low on my list. So it's also weird that this game is a kind of Euro game. Actually, it's very much a Euro game. It's called Revive. It is from 2022, but we didn't see it until 2023. So designed by Helge Meissner, Christian Amun, Otsby, Elif Svensson, and Anna Wormland. Published by Aporta Games and Asmodee US distributed. This is like a Euro 2X. Which 2Xs? Which 2Xs are explore and expand. There's no combat, period. Hmm. And there's no taxing or anything of the stuff you've got down. So you don't gain extra resources from stuff you've already got. And mostly, the premise is post-apocalypse. Basically, the planet was covered with ice and starting to warm. Hmm. You've been basically living inside this volcano and now you're emerging and repopulating the world with a number of alien races. This is a big, giant Euro game that every mechanic seems really strong. This one basically focuses heavily on the various tech trees and upgrading your capabilities, which is the fifth, not really, X. And so what you're doing is basically populating and spreading out your various buildings and people. But you've only got two actions a turn, and you've only got like a palette of four or five different actions. And a lot of it, the game revolves around two different tech trees. For one, you've got this group of cards representing basically workers, and you play them to get stuff mostly, but sometimes to take actions. And depending on whether you play them on the top or bottom of your reserve board, determines what action or what effect you get. But yeah, that can be an action. You can get, of course, more uh, workers by just buying them using different action or getting them from some effects. Then you get upgrades for the slots where you place workers, where placing matching workers will give you more stuff. You've also got a full tech tree board with three different tracks where you get things along the way. I'm looking at that board on the Geek and it looks nuts. I love it. Oh, yeah. You had me at Tech Tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the tech is, you know, getting new workers and getting to draft from workers, as well as, you know, deciding which tech to move up. And it's still surprisingly simple to play and teach. There's so much stuff going on, and one action may sprawl into a couple of more actions, and then you can get a power-up, because you have to have energy tokens to power your various techs to do extra actions on a turn and so an individual action can sprawl a bit. And even though it has points out at the end a little bit, it's absolutely compelling to play and completely engrossing for... It's kind of long. It's a three-hour big old affair. But it really kind of scratched that 4X itch, even though totally non-aggressive. A little bit of blocking, a little bit of placement, but the game is so good and so simple and obvious how you actually play. How you actually approach things and all the choices you have on a turn are just terrifying. Fascinating. It looks like
0: the kind of thing I would like to play if I had an extra few hours. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. But I'm interested to try it, as I so
4: often say. Yeah, i surprised. It's really good and kind of drifts early, but it stood out so strongly. Okay. Very cool. Oh, also, there's kind of a not really legacy game. But there is a campaign that unlocks a few expansions over the course of the campaign.
3: Mm.
4: Go on. (laughs) It adds some theme to the whole story of the game and just unlocks some different things, including an extra playable race and other bits and pieces.
2: You know what I need in my life? Another
4: Another
0: campaign campaign game. Oh yeah, totally. An infinite amount more time. Right, exactly. Oh,
2: yes,
4: that too. Also That's yeah. But this one, this one doesn't really give you stuff between campaigns. It just unlocks expansions. So, okay. hmm, it's not one of those. Not a real campaign game.
0: All right. Very interesting. I'm not going to say you're going to get a point from it, but I'm going to look at it some more. Cool, thanks. All right. Let's hear what Jason has to say.
3: All right, so number 2 here was Descent Legends of the Dark. So this is essentially the third version of the Descent game system. I think it originally came out in 2005. This one came out in 2021 from a company that I basically don't think exists anymore, Fantasy Flight Games, created by Kara Dunk and Nathan I. Hadjik. This is essentially a kind of a reimplementation of the old Descent 2nd edition game that I've actually played quite a lot of. In Descent, one player was playing as the Overlord, controlling all the baddies, and then four other players were playing as the heroes in a fantasy realm that Fantasy Flight created called Terranoth. It's a super generic fantasy world, as far as I'm concerned. I think the only real different thing they do is like they're really obsessed with like magical rune stones, which are really powerful for some reason. But it's your standard fantasy fare for the most part. This new implementation of it uh, requires an app. It's actually very heavily dependent on this app. But it's a cooperative dungeon crawler. They've removed the overlord. The app actually takes care of all the enemy activations. And their kind of big claim to fame in this one was they really went hard on the building out the map. So the app will tell you what you need to put down. And you've got these cardboard three-dimensional objects that you're putting down as well. So you'll put down the actual map piece itself, and then you might connect it to some pillars to make it vertically taller. Or you might add some bookshelves or a table or whatnot, and you can interact with these objects through the app, telling the app that your character is taking an interact action next to them. The app also tracks the enemy activations. It also tracks your decisions over the course of the game. So each character kind of has two different tracks that are based on how they react to what's happening in the story. So based on how you react, there are benefits or penalties that you experience later on in the campaign. And there are also different ways of, I guess, deciding how your character is, because there's two very clear delineations. I don't know if there's a best way to do it, if you just go hard one direction or if you try and stay in the middle. We all tend to make very strong decisions in our campaign. So most of what we've been seeing has really just been one direction versus the other. But where I think this game really shines and what I've really been enjoying is the app management is actually fairly interesting. So each of the characters has their own set of skills. All of the cards that they have, including their character card and their equipment cards, like their weapons, for example, are two-sided. You can flip them, and flipping them will have different abilities and different capabilities for them. But more importantly, whenever you take what they call a prepare action, which is when you flip a card, any statuses that you have or any fatigue, which is basically a resource you use to activate powers, all of that gets removed whenever you flip a card So a lot of the gameplay is kind of deciding what's the best time to make that choice, make that flip. What's the best way to preserve spots on your equipment or your skills to spend fatigue when you need to so that you can activate your more powerful abilities? And then making the decision, hey, some enemies are vulnerable to piercing damage versus slashing damage, so I'm going to change my weapon to this other weapon that will be able to hurt them more. And the app is keeping track of those immunities. It's keeping track of the statuses the enemies have. It's keeping track of their health. It'll tell you who they're going to attack. It's keeping track of upgrades that you put on your weapons. So a lot of the game is like you're collecting both crafting components and you'll find recipes for making a different pommel for your sword or a different bow for your ranger. And those will have different abilities that trigger a certain percentage of the time. So if you look at your character and Whatever pieces of equipment you've selected, it'll say, oh, there's a 20% chance of proccing this thing, there's a 15% chance of proccing this thing, and a 30% chance of proccing this thing. The app keeps track of all of that, and it'll report when this thing triggers and what the actual effect is. I'll be honest, when we first started playing this, when it first came out, I was fairly convinced that that wasn't working correctly, like there was something wrong with the math. For example, my character had an ability that would damage all enemies on the board 20% of the time. And I don't think for the entire first 70% of the campaign we saw it trigger once. Statistically, I suppose that's possible. It wasn't involving me rolling dice, so I refused to take responsibility for it. I think there was something genuinely wonky with the app. And then all of a sudden it just started working, and it seems to be triggering exactly how frequently I would expect. So it might just be my perception, but it does seem that they've made whatever corrections needed to be made. That part's really fun, especially we can trigger like three things at once. <laughs> And it's just like you just do a ton of damage or put a whole bunch of statuses on an enemy. We've been really enjoying it. We finished the actual first act is what they're calling these. The second act just came out. The Betrayer's War is what they're calling the second one. They've been saying the emphasis on this second one will be on making the levels even more vertical. I'll be honest, it looks really cool, but it's kind of a pain in the butt putting all these maps together. It takes a lot of time, and some of them are a little tenuous. We've definitely knocked things over many, many times. And the concept of making these even taller is not something I'm super thrilled on. And they changed the art for the second game, which I, I don't think any of us like the new art any better than we like the original. It's kind of a weird choice on their part. But I've been really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun just kind of unlocking stuff. You do have like little challenges that your characters assign. So like, do X amount of damage to rogue-type monsters or be the first person to open a door three times. They're pretty varied and when you unlock them, they'll give you things like new skills, or they'll give you a recipe for a new type of potion, or something like that. Kind of the only time that gets real annoying is we've definitely had the case where we've unlocked the upgraded versions of some gear, but not the original version of the gear. and It won't let you create the upgraded version unless you've found the original version. So we just have some stuff we've unlocked that we can never upgrade, which is an odd choice. I don't know why they did it that way. That Also feels like something they just messed up, but I don't know. We've played like the first game of the new box, the new act, and we haven't unlocked anything like that yet. So who knows? Maybe they've fixed it, but definitely fun. We've been enjoying it. I'm looking forward to going through this next campaign. The missions are long. I will say that. The first mission of the new box was three hours long, so just don't expect to get many of them out in a single evening.
2: Okay, my biggest problem with that
0: is that I'm not a
2: part of that <laughs> game. Well,
0: Mike, I would like to play it sometime, so we should have our own campaign without those other people.
4: Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah, we kind of messed around with it, but haven't really started our campaign. So I'm taking some time to paint the minis, because the minis are exceptional. In a weird kind of Art Nouveau-ish style hmm. that I do like. Because I do love the art for the game. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. I didn't say nothing. I do know for a fact that those miniatures
2: are nigh unusable in the board game. What? There is one character that has a staff that extends what might as well be a million miles off of its base. (laughs) And it's just like... The sculptor for the miniatures was clearly not told that these were going to be used for a board game.
0: Were these designed by weird miniatures people?
4: (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, agreed. That one, oh, Fire Mage. Oh man, that was, yeah, that's pretty stupid. But the game's really good, solid. So yeah.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the sculpt problems in this game, and frankly, many, many other games, is because... You make the sculpts and you design the board separately because you can't get the sculpts and put them on the board because that's not the way physics work. So you have like, well, cool, we have this much space, but you don't really think about you think about the base, but not how do these figures interact as they get taller. Mm -hmm. I've seen this in a number of different games where it's very clear that like they had their base size and they kept to their base size, but. They did not think about how these figures would interact with each other on the board if they needed to sit next to
0: each other. It's like, if there's one figure that sticks out over the base, then you can work with that. But if there are multiple ones to do it especially, it gets complicated.
1: Yeah, Mike's favorite game, Aeon's Trespass Odyssey, has it real bad. Their figures almost always blossom over the base, and so inevitably they will have to be positioned strangely, especially all the player figures, so that they can sit comfortably on the map. <laughs>
2: And don't even get me started on any board game that then also has facing rules. Like, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs>
0: nope. I literally can't fit that way. <laughs> All right, Joe, what's next on your list?
1: Okay, so my next pick is Heat, published by Days of Wonder, designed by Asger Harding Grenarud and Daniel Skold Peterson.
0: I think the full name is Heat Pedal to the Metal, yeah.
1: It is Heat Pedal to the Metal, you're correct. Heat Pedal to the Metal is the full name and in heat to the Pedal of the metal it's a racing game with a tiny amount of deck building in it the randomness is provided by cards and on your turn right you will choose to either go up or down a gear potentially multiple gears if you pay a resource and then that gear will determine the number of cards that you have to play out that turn and then you have a hand of 7 cards and you select the cards to play Then everyone goes around the table resolving them. There are a couple of, like, on-the-board effects. There's, like, a catch-up mechanic for the person who's in last. If you end your move next to or behind another person, you can kind of drift forward, like, catching their tailwinds, as it were, uh, and get some additional movement, which is great. And the game is relatively straightforward, and really the core mechanic is the heat mechanic, So the heat mechanic is whenever you want to do things that are dangerous or things that are challenging in some way, you have to take heat, which is a specific deck that you have. Everybody has a set amount of heat. And place those into your discard pile. And so heat will then shuffle back up the next time your discard pile shuffles into a new draw deck. And then you'll pull heat into your hand. And you can't discard heat. There are things that allow you to cool your heat, right? Going in slower gears will allow you to cool some heat being in last place will allow you to cool some heat. And then there are a set of specific components that you can draft for that allow you to cool some heat. Once your hand is full of this heat, you can't discard the heat. It just sits in your hand until you find a way to get rid of it. And if you end up having so much heat in your hand that you have to play a heat card because your speed requires you to play four cards and you only got three cards that aren't heat, then you stop moving and you kind of drop into first. You kind of spin out, in essence. And the other thing that is very clever about the game is it has these turns that you have to be going at a specific speed, and if you go over that speed, for each one over that speed, you pay a heat to kind of maneuver through that turn safely. And if you can't pay all the required heat, then you spin out, you kind of end up before the the turn line at downshift to zero and take some additional stress, and stress is a card that when you play it, you get a random draw of one through four from your deck. And so it can be hard with uh, random cards like, If you're not on a big straightaway, playing a random card could potentially really injure you. And the game is extremely tight. It plays very quickly. The drafting mechanic feels really good. All the components just form together to create a really awesome and really enjoyable experience. I'm not like a big racing guy. friend of the show, Chris, is a big racing guy or big car guy, I guess, more accurately. He loves this game. But the game is extremely well put together, extremely tightly packed. It has only the mechanics it needs and no other mechanics. It's great.
2: Yeah, this very much feels like a formula day, but instead of being dice-powered, it is card-powered. Which is infinitely better. Oh, yeah. But their deck-building mechanic is really
0: tight, it's really small, and it feels really good. Yeah, I played this for the first time last night and quite enjoyed it. I'd been hearing good things about it. I find it interesting that it is sort of a deck-building game in which the only thing you can add to your deck is bad.
2: Mm -hmm. There's literally no way to make your
0: deck better. That's
2: not true at all. Well, you can get heat out. At the beginning of each race, we get to draft three special gear cards to put into our deck.
0: Sure, yes. But yeah, it's just really clever, and you can see definitely the personalities of the racers come out, like Mike. Was pretty aggressive in last night's game and spun out a few times as a result. I was very conservative, which means I never spun out, but I also never won. It's really nicely put together. It's not on my list, because I just played it last night, but I quite like it.
4: Oh yeah, great game.
2: I think one of the most surprising things about it was it has a automation mode for robot racers, which were surprisingly tight for what the mechanics were. And basically, just there is a point on each segment of the track in which if the AI player is in front of or behind, it will do a different thing. If it's in front of that line, it will move a smaller amount as it is approaching a turn. If it is behind that line, it will move a much larger distance, but it will be forced to stop a certain distance away from the next turn. And it shocked me for three out of the four games that we played, how close together those AI players remained. Even though they would have big stretches of like really high bursts of speed, at no point did they ever feel unbeatable. Yeah.
1: But they are demons on large (laughs) sections, for sure.
0: Yeah, and there's, what, four different tracks in the box?
1: Yeah, there are four different tracks in the box.
0: That are very different in the way they play. I quite like it, and will probably wind up buying a copy.
1: It's also surprising how close the game ends up feeling a lot of times, right? Because of the turn system, you end up having all the players kind of group up a fair amount. And that feels really good when you're like halfway through a race and it's still really close, right? It's uh-huh. like, yeah, yeah. Definitely a story engine too, because like there's the, hey, there's the straightaway where I had to play a random card and I drew a four and it was the only thing that would cause me to go over the line. And now I went over the five turn line going 14 and <laughs> spun out because I did not have a million heat.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think all of our spin outs were caused by a random card draw which you have to do at some point. But it was like, I remember there was a time where both Joe and I were like, what are the odds that we will draw a four out of this deck? And surely we will be fine. And then we, of course, like put pedal to the metal and just gun it around this curve. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Recommend. So my fourth one is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which was made by Michael Menzel and published by Cosmos Games, because apparently I'm having a Cosmos year. <laughs> and I think I might have mentioned this on my last year's top five, but this year the expansion came out, which was...
1: Tuck is stupid, I believe is what it's
0: called. I
2: mean, Tuck <laughs> is very stupid. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a apt name, because Friar Tuck is just a bumbling fool throughout this whole expansion, but...
1: Friar Tuck in Danger is the official name.
2: Yeah, huh. mostly self-imposed. But the mechanics of this game, and the artistic style of this game, and the storytelling elements of this game continue to just be charming AF. And at no point when we were playing this was I like, I'd rather be playing something else, which is the thing I constantly felt <laughs> while playing the other game we were playing in that time slot, Aeons and Trespass. So maybe this game is getting a little bit of a boost just from relativity to other games, but I still love this game and would like to play more of it.
0: Very cool. Oh, yeah. It has a lot of just neat ideas going on in there. The way the board is set up with the little removable... Tokens, I guess, to reveal different stuff as it shows up. I like it a lot.
4: Yeah, some of the bag stocking. The fact that there's not really dice, but it's mostly just pulling stuff out of a bag.
2: And they're real smart about that, too, right? Because at the end of the game, cleanup is put everything into the bag. That's my favorite kind of cleanup.
0: (laughs) Having just played some uh, Return to Dark Tower last night, easy cleanup goes a long way. (laughs) So my number four is is what I like to think of as Nemesis only a lot better. So Mike might even play it, although I haven't gotten any of you guys to play it yet. This is Stationfall. It was a 2023 (laughs) release from Matt Eklund and Ion Game Design. And the premise is this. You are all on a space station, which is having some problems with its orbit and is currently rapidly crashing into the atmosphere so that in a few turns everyone is going to die. There are a bunch of characters on the station. So for like for a four-player game, there's I think a dozen characters available. At the start of the game, you each secretly are given two of those character cards and you choose one of them to be your primary character. But during the game, anyone can move any character and use their special abilities and do their different stuff. Your ultimate objective is to get your primary character to fulfill whatever their goal is frequently, but not always. That goal includes getting off the space station before it crashes into the atmosphere. But you may be trying to recover certain items or you may be trying to make sure a certain other character survives or a certain other character dies. There's a a wide variety. There's, I think, like 30 characters total in the game and they're all very different and unique. So each turn you can take a couple actions with a character that you choose. And at some point in the game, you can sort of reveal who your real character is, which gives you kind of like a reveal ability and also means nobody else can use that character anymore. It gets more expensive to activate a character if someone else, including you, has activated it recently so you can't just like easily take over one person. There are a lot of moving parts. It's not a simple game. There are a bunch of different things. There are certain rooms where you can unlock certain doors and there's something called Project X. That is a random secret thing, which might be military lasers or a horrible alien creature or whatever. A lot of the characters are very unique and cool. There's like a hyper-intelligent lab rat and the space chimp is there and a bunch of different stuff. There's just a lot of different stuff available. It's very cleverly put together. The components are very smart. There's like a, Depending on what characters show up, certain things like there may be an extra ship out here or one of the escape shuttles may be broken or et cetera, et cetera, And they're just very cleverly put together. So that if you flip that token over, like then it turns out that this extra escape shuttle that's outside is actually belongs to a pirate and he's going to try and blackmail or kill everyone.
4: And there's always a monster in the hold. Oh man, if that ever gets loose. <laughs> it's not always a monster. Butcher, Sometimes
0: right there are space lasers, but yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's a game that, sometimes bad luck or bad combinations of things will mean you're a little screwed before the game ends. But I think the journey is interesting enough that it makes it worthwhile. I have played and run a couple games of this online on the Board Game Geek forums. I've fiddled around with it in Tabletop Simulator. I haven't played it live against people yet, and I'm really looking forward to pulling it out because I think, I hope other people will like it as much as I do, because I think it's a lot of fun.
1: How many is the optimal number? Because it plays up to nine?
0: It does play up to nine. (laughs) I think four or five is probably the sweet spot, just from a time perspective, if nothing else. But I think playing with nine would be kind of nuts. I think basically every character in the game is on the station at that point, which gives you a lot of decisions to make as to who can activate stuff. But yeah, I think probably
4: four or five is what you want. I think more would be fine, but it would be very capricious. Yeah, for sure. The game does encourage it so that the same characters don't always take actions mm-hmm. in a good way. There are so many possible actions and space actions and uh, actions depending on what space you're in. Right. Like I said, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, understanding what you can actually do is daunting. Mm-hmm. So that first game is a uh, you want with few players because it's a total wait. What happens? <laughs> right. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean that. Well, that's what you did. (laughs) Yeah, and they're all, all the actions
0: are pretty thematically sensible. You know, I think it makes sense once you sort of grok what the station is all about and what people are doing. I think it's easy to get there. But yeah, the first game is going to be a little intimidating. Yeah,
1: I'm excited to try it.
0: Yes, I'm
4: excited to bring it over sometime. Mm -hmm. Right, that brings us to Frank. Okay, the game is Euthyia Torment of Resurrection. Technically from 2021, but Marqueta, Viahova and Taddeus Spousta, the publishers listed currently as Steamforge Games Limited, but they did the Euthy Resurrected, which is a Kickstarter to bring this game back. It was published by a company called Dia Games, and this is, well, this is Diablo the board game. Okay. Another take on Diablo the board game, which automatically appeals to me. In this case, it comes in a box that's crazy giant huge with more cards and tiles than you can actually tiles really not is actually I don't think there yeah there are some cards and you have a map with trihexes and you explore it and just go find stuff and the game ends <laughs> okay but the scope of the game is sprawling and huge you can actually mine stuff, find treasures, fight monsters, of course. And it's just a big, sprawling exploration kind of. It reminds me in a lot of ways of Mage Knight in terms of the what you're doing in the game. Aw, oh,
2: there's a game I never got to play.
4: And the reason is Mage Knight is so complicated and so kind of baffling with all its cards and various mechanisms. This doesn't have any of that. When you do something, it's obvious how you do it. And the rules are very simple in a lot of ways. When you get into combat, it's a series of 2d6 rolls where you then look at the result on a table on your card. But for quality of life, there is a dice mitigation mechanic. Yay! So if you start rolling really bad, that can give you not as much help as you want, but it'll try to keep you alive. And of course, death, because it is a Diablo kind of game, means you respawn to the church and listen to Deckard Cain Tell you to stay a and listen. listen. Yeah, totally. And there are about 20 different scenarios. How does it mechanically play, though? Because, like, I can't
2: imagine Diablo transferring to board game mechanics very well. And
4: I say that it was inspired by Diablo. The art is definitely Diablo. In this case, it's more of a classic magic realm y, you know, kill monsters, level up, get stuff. And in this case, the gameplay is based on a number of turns or a final victory condition with a chaser, depending on which scenario you're playing. And so it's mostly a big overland adventure game. But it's really good, really simple. There are a billion ways to go. When you encounter like a settlement, there are special settlements that will then bring in their own decks that you can then go get quests. And obviously do quests and do the World of Warcraft thing. It's almost more of a World of Warcraft simulator instead of Diablo. The art is totally that isometric Diablo look, though. For fans of Diablo 2 is clearly there. Is the
0: questing directed, or is it just kind of wander off and find stuff? It's bring me,
4: bring me an ore and something. Oh, okay. Or you know, appear and knock the monsters out, so you can go in and we can actually all go shop at that point. <laughs> and it just. Play so seamlessly it can be long. I'm probably best with like three.
0: I don't think long has ever scared us off of a game.
4: <laughs> yeah, you're looking at an hour per player for the starter scenario. Maybe you can fit it in two hours. Some of the bigger scenarios could go ten or twelve hours. Oof, in fact, the starter scenario only uses the first three sets of board tiles of which there are five. hmm, and it's a big sprawling sprawling board. But yeah, the mechanics are nothing. I mean, it's pretty much, okay, I get this. I slot it. It's going to cost me so much gold. Or do I have this much experience? I get to choose from one of these two tiles for my level up ability. So there's a minor skill tree going there. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Totally worth it. And giant, sprawling, huge. Okay. But most of that's all content. Okay. What was
2: the name of this one again?
4: Euthia. E-U-T-H-I-A. Torment of Resurrection.
0: That seems to be the new standard naming convention for these big fantasy games. It's like, yeah, totally. made up place name, ominous subtitle.
4: <laughs> yeah. And it is very sandboxy. I mean, uh, you could just go mine for your entire game and have a decent chance at it. Okay. Interesting. Huh.
0: And that is where we draw to a close on this month's portion of the episode. It just went on too long because, as you've noticed, we do like to talk. Tune in again next month for the remaining 60% of our year-end wrap-up, and in the meantime, have fun, play games, and thanks for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at Ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
1: Let me pause one second. I'm going to listen to this name one more time because their (laughs) name is so hard that I had to go look it up.